everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Pension Trends Plus with Atara, bringing you up-to-date information on pension funds, securities class action litigation, and all things related to your portfolio, and some life stuff as well. I'm Atara Hirsch-Tworsky, securities class action attorney at AF&T in New York City. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Cynthia Ruiz. Cynthia is president of the Los Angeles City Employee Retirement System, a multi-billion dollar public fund serving the public employees of LA. Cynthia is also a best-selling author of three books and a recipient of numerous awards, including a Woman of Distinction Award, which she received by the prestigious Hollywood Chamber. Cynthia holds a master's degree from California State University and completed a leadership course at Harvard University School of Government. Hi, Cynthia. How are you today? I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Atara. I am just so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So um, really, uh, as I I said to you when when we talked a moment earlier, you really are so inspiring to young women around the country. You're involved in so many diverse projects and interesting things. But before I get started about all of that, I know you're in California and things haven't been going so well there. So I really want to just ask you with regard to COVID and with the fires now everywhere, how are you all doing there? Well, I'm personally doing fabulous However, as you know, it has been challenging times uh, with the fires. Luckily, they're not near me, but you know, my hearts and prayers go out to everybody that's been affected by the fires here in California. And in terms of COVID, I really think this has been an interesting time, but it's been also for me personally, a time of self-reflection. Mm. And I think the people that are gonna succeed during this pandemic are the people that are willing to pivot and change, both on a personal level and a business level. If you think you're gonna go back to the way that things used to be, that no longer exists. So we're going through a transition, not only in Los Angeles, but globally. And so it's really about incorporating new ideas and new ways of thinking. I think that's so well said and so 100% on the mark because I think, you know, we've never experienced something as a people, right? It's not even just as a nation and the United States of America, right? It's really as a people in the universe, um, all together at the same time, going through the same um, experiences, right? So that's a unique opportunity in and of itself to say, hey, what's going on here? And is the universe, you know, without getting too hokey, but is the universe trying to tell us something? And and what can we take away from this that will make us better people, both as a whole and individually, just as you said? I couldn't agree more. And I always like to say is, you know, when there's a challenge, where are there opportunities? What are the lessons that we need to learn from this challenge? And this is probably one of the biggest challenges that I think the United States has had in a very long time. Yes, I think that's so true. So I want to start, this is um, interesting because we're talking about, you know, pivoting and making changes. So um, as president of the board of, you know, the Los Angeles Retirement System uh, Board, it's a pretty large public fund and managing it, especially now, cannot be easy. So how have you seen things change and how are you looking to implement lasting change? Well, first of all, the biggest change that's happened is that our board meetings are now virtual. Right. We were the first department in the city of Los Angeles to go virtual. 
as soon as this happened, I said, okay, we got to have our meetings virtually. And it took a minute for staff to say, okay, well, we're not ready yet. I said, well, we have to get ready. So going virtual has been a challenge. I mean, our board meetings last normally four hours. Just So to sit in front of the computer on Zoom for four hours is challenging. And as, a, as chair of the board, you have to be paying attention to everything. So that's been a challenge. And the other challenge has been, and uh, city employees are not used to this, but people are working from home. So our management had to pivot very quickly and provide the necessary tools for our employees to be at home. And then the next layer is that of that is make sure that we're holding our employees accountable why they are working remotely, which is something new for the city. But you know what? Again, it's about pivoting and we have great management at our pension fund. And I'm just really proud of the way that everybody's been able to shift on a dime. That's really amazing. How large a staff do you have at the fund? So we are just over a hundred people. Wow. And, and in, in addition to that, we're also, we just bought a building. So we were transitioning from um, one location to another. So there's a lot of layers of change that are happening. And my experience have been when people go to work for government, government tends to attract a type of person that maybe doesn't like change because they usually stay in these jobs for 30 years. So it's really about making sure we're keeping the morale up, making sure that our supervisors have the skills that they need to supervise people remotely. So there's been a lot of moving parts that I think that staff and the board have just handled very well. Wow, that's nice to hear. So with respect to investments, how has the board been looking at investments now? Have they changed their strategy? Have they changed how they see themselves wanting to invest as fiduciaries? So I have to say yes and no. And give, let me give you the no part first. First of all, when you're a, a trustee on a pension fund, you're looking at a 30-year horizon. We really, what we basically do, we're policymakers and we set the ranges for our different asset classes. So, you know, we are saying, okay, yes, we're having temporary bumps in the road, but, you know, the long term, we have to make sure that, you know, we're making minor adjustments. And next year, we're going to go through a whole exercise of looking at our different asset classes. So, for a long term 30 year investments and 30 year horizon, that really hasn't changed that much. However, what we're really trying to do is looking at the nuances, right? Is like, where can we make adjustments to kind of ride this wave? The challenge, of course, as we all know, is nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. My perception of what's going to happen is that we, because of the, of the pandemic, this has been one of the most challenging years in terms of so many people out of work. And I feel that 2021 is really going to be very challenging because it's going to catch up to us. I think what, like everyone's going to sort of come up for a breath of air and say, okay, now what? Well, but as, you know, but markets are going to change because, you know, when you have that many people out of work, it's going to have an impact. I, I predict that starting first quarter 2021, you're going to start seeing a lot of people lose their homes because they're not able to afford it and things are going to starting to shift. Now, in terms of our actual pension fund, right now we're just over a $19 billion portfolio. And we really haven't seen 
we've had bumps, uh, ups and downs, but we haven't seen major change. So that makes me a little nervous mm-hmm. you know, going into next year. But I just have where I get the confidence is knowing that we're in it for the long haul. And um, as you know, you know, the financial world runs in cycles. And I already think before pre-pandemic, we were, you know, probably at the ninth inning of this financial cycle. Right. So you add the pandemic, it, it makes me a little nervous. Yeah, but, I get but that. Again, <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, you have to, as, as leadership, as policymakers, as trustees, we just have to make sure that we're acting in with, with integrity and looking at things in, on the, that 30-year year horizon. I think that's uh, that's good for other funds to hear as well. So, as board member, as and and in your role as policymakers, which I think is is very um, well said, because I think that is one of your great functions. Um, how do public policies inform your investment decisions? Well, I think I have focused a lot on public policy. I've been on the pension five years, and the last two years, I, I've been president of the board, and where I have really put my efforts is in ESG, environmentally, socially responsible and governance, because I really do believe that that is the way of the future. And so let me break it down for the environment. It's not, yes, I'm an environmentalist, but it's bigger than that. Because look at the, uh, the fires that we're having, look at the impact that global warming has had on the world. And guess what? That costs a lot of money. So I think as a fiduciary, it's, it's my responsibility to make sure that when we're looking invest in, at investments, we are looking through that ESG lens. And in terms of the governance piece, to me, the governance piece is so important. And where I feel I can make the biggest impact is on the governance piece is really encouraging diversity on corporate boards, boards, you know, boards that we have uh, influence on through our proxy voting, making sure that we're getting more women on these boards, making sure that we're getting more people of color. I know I saw a statistic yesterday, there's an organization called Women on Boards 2020, and they released a report saying that now today, uh, in terms of the Russell 3000 companies, they now have reached a 22% um, mark on women on boards. So I think that's great thanks to organizations like that. But I think that we, why is it important to have women on boards or people of color? Because again, board set policy and you wanna have diversity. So to me, diversity of thought and diversity of ideas brings the incremental change that is needed in some of these companies. I think that's so true. So that actually brings me to my next question about, um, I know Los Angeles retirement system has been involved in securities litigation. Do you see that as something also important as far as um, the long haul of your portfolio and how the trajectory will look if you step up, take a stand when needed, when necessary? Oh, absolutely. Because a lot of, you know, in the financial world, and you know this better than I, For a long time, it looked the same. And so when you're creating change, and most people don't like change, you have to approach it from a multi-pronged approach. Yes, policy is one, but sometimes litigation is needed to um, push a little bit. Now, I'm not going to say the name of any companies. 
but it is public. So I'm, yes, I'm, I was going to say we could we could Google it after. <laughs> and, and so what we did had to do through our amazing city attorneys is we did push a large company and we weren't looking for money. We were pushing them to change some of their policies right. in terms of diversity. And we came to a successful uh, resolution to a very large company that, that everybody has a lot of name ID. But so, yeah, so you have to, when you're doing changes, it's a multi-prong approach and litigation is one, changing policies where you invest your money. It all plays into the same thing. Yeah, I think I think that's a very important point that you make, that it, it's a multi-prong approach. And it's also remembering that change happens slowly, but then suddenly, right? So if you are constantly implementing and putting into place um, the avenues that you need to, then eventually, and, and then one day, your portfolio is just going to look its best. And I think that funds are beginning to recognize, I know there's always like a bit of, you know, scare around attorneys and litigation. And, you know, I'm not promoting it either way right now. I'm just um, getting it out there that this is just one other way for funds to remember, you know, if we want to make lasting change, sometimes we do have to engage in litigation. And, and like you said, and it's not always just for money, but it's for corporate governance changes in derivative kinds of cases or various cases that would bring about those corporate governance changes that are so important and can be so lasting. Right, and because we both know that especially the governance piece, women bring a different perspective to boards. So one of the things I do, I'm a professor and I teach leadership and I teach, and this is not my theory, but the, the leadership theories, women lead from social aspects and men lead from individual aspects. Now, what does that mean is women tend to, when they're making decisions, look at the greater good of everyone, where men tend to be more individualistic in the individual gain. Now, I'm not criticizing either one or saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying that it's different. So as we get more women in leadership roles, it changes the dynamic. And to me, it changes it in a good way. Absolutely, because every, everyone comes with their own perspective, which um, you as well, right? You're such a diverse person yourself. I know you're a registered citizen in the Cherokee Nation, right? Yes, I am. And so I'm very, so my um, ethnic background is I'm half Latina, which my dad was Mexican. And my mom on her side, Native American Cherokee. The Cherokees are the largest tribe in the United States. I'm a citizen. I'm very involved. Um, as a matter of fact, last year I got the, the Cherokee Leader of the Year Award. I and, love that. <laughs> and this year, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually the keynote at their big uh, actual annual conference, which was virtual this year. So I'm very involved. And a lot of people have misconceptions about some of the tribes. The Cherokees, we actually own 10 casinos. So our annual budget is over a billion dollars. And this is where I think leader, women leadership makes a difference. When gaming first came into the tribe, we had a woman principal chief, Wilma Mankiller. And she didn't want you know, gaming to come into the tribe because there could potentially be a bad element. So what she did is the only way she allowed it to come in is make sure that the money, the revenues, went back into the community and it was used for the greater good of the community. So we have hospitals, you know, we have school. Oh, wow. we, and, and I'm proud to say that the Cherokees 
um, opened the first ever tribal uh, medical school. And in um, 2024, we're going to be graduating our first class of doctors. Wow, that is wonderful. And I know that you serve on the board for an organization called Girls Today, a Women Tomorrow. Can you tell us a little about that? So I, for the last decade, I've been involved in a program called Girls Today, Women Tomorrow. And it's really a mentorship leadership program for young women in the inner city. And to me, it's about opportunities. I was the first person in my family to go to college, so I didn't have a lot of help or a lot of mentors, and I struggled. So to me, it's about giving back and helping these amazing young girls and just actually exposing them to the opportunities that are available to them. We have 99% of our girls, and they're young girls, they're age uh, 12 to 22, They 99% go on to college. We've actually had one of our our alumni go to London School of Business. So it's really about just giving them the support, not only from the mentors, but each other. You know, as young girls, it could be very difficult in high school. You know, people are very, you know, petty and, and mean to each other. It's about having that support, not only at the peer level, but at the mentor and adult level. And we see these young women thrive. I think that's key. Um, what you just said, it's such an important poignant thing that you said. It's that, you know, having a girl, having somebody to look up to inside of school, outside of school, when she's struggling, it's just, it's life changing. Like her, the trajectory of her life can change with that one person in it. Absolutely. And in my life, I've been a trailblazer in so many ways. For example, I was the first Latina Native American to be president of the Board of Public Works for the city of LA. So I was in charge of 5,000 people and just under a billion dollar a year budget. You know, I'm the first a Native Latina to be president of the pension fund. So when you're, when you're the first one in the door, it comes with a lot of responsibility. It comes with, you have to be that much more prepared. You have to work twice as hard because everybody's looking at you as the first. So they wanna see, you know, what you're made of. And so it comes with a lot of responsibility. So being the first one in the door, it's my responsibility to turn around and help others get into that door as well. That's great. Did you feel pushback in any of the roles that you had being the first woman and Native American Latina? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for example, you know, public works in the city of Los Angeles, that's all infrastructure. You know, that's engineering and streets and cutting the trees and all that. So there would be many times that I would be the only woman in a meeting. Right. There'd be like 30 people in the meeting. I was the only woman and I am the boss, right? I have a very collaborative uh, style. So what I would do is if we had a tough issue, I would you know, identify the issue, but then I would go around to all 30 people in the room and ask them their opinion. I would get the input. And then once I heard everybody, I'd say, okay, bam, this is my decision. This is what we're gonna do. Wow. Yeah. And then everybody would look at me like, wow, we've never done it that way. I and love that. But so that was their indirect way of challenging me. I said, I know, you, I know we haven't done it that way, but just humor me. Let's try it my way. And if it doesn't work, we'll go back to your way. And then six months later, they're like, wow, it worked. No, it but, does. But it's, it's so it's that challenging because you don't, as a woman, everybody's looking at you. So you right. don't. You don't want to be too hard. You want to come across as that angry woman, but you can't be too nice because then they 
perceive your niceness as weakness. As weakness, so right. Yeah. So it's finding that balance. No, it's, I, I mean, it's always a balance, especially when you're um, leading something. And it's a balance also in, in giving um, other people, empowering people who work for you. And I think that's what you're saying you were doing. Collaborating with them is empowering them to say, I have a voice also. And that, that's, I think, helpful for the group dynamic and for the ultimate carry through of the decision that you actually made. I'm sure that was very impactful, being able to collaborate. Yeah, and I think leadership matters. You know, leadership matters, and everybody in the team's looking towards the leader. They're going to watch every – I mean, they watched who I went to lunch with, you know, what or I mean, I, I was under the microscope. But, again, I saw it as a challenge. I am going to show up and be the best person that I could be. So when they think of Latina Native Americans, they think, wow, she was really good. Right. Right. You're a good role model. You know, everything we're talking about reminds me of, are, are you familiar with Dr. Ross Green and his books, The Collaborative Approach to Parenting? I am not. Oh, I, I'm going to send you a link. I interviewed him as well. He's a Harvard professor, a wonderful um, organization that he actually put through all about exactly what you're saying and with children, with respect to children at home and in school that really telling them like, this is how we need to behave and you're not behaving and reward and punishment. None of that really works. But what works is the collaborative approach and, and trying to get the, ch the child themselves to buy into the solution. And when I interviewed him, I actually said to him, you know, at work, I think this works fantastically as well. And he was like, that, that's my next book. You know, um, because I think that it's true in life, like collaborating and being a good role model, but not not um, putting your thoughts and ideas on the people who work for you, but really letting them have a voice is really it's really part of the solution, I think. Absolutely, because if you don't get their buy in, right? You know, if nobody likes being forced to do something, right? If, right? Because if you're forced to do something, then you tend to rebel or, or reject it. But if you get their buy-in and, you know, but the, to me, the key to being a parent or being a leader is consistency. Yes. Because if you're not consistent with what you say and what you do, then they're going to get mixed messages and not know what to and do. Not know well, what is it that you really want. I think that's true. Um, I love that you're an author of these three great books. Um, I'm just going to pick one that's title I love: um, "Stories of Healing and Hope." Can you tell us a little about that? Yes, that was a collaboration with other authors. This was inspired by the Me Too movement, and the, we all know about the Me Too movement. But for the Me Too movement, that was usually addressing sexual harassment in the workplace. Mm -hmm. In the Latino and Native American uh, community, a lot of the sexual trauma happens at home. It happens at home by either somebody you know or a family member. So what we wanted to do is start addressing that issue and really help people get towards healing. So instead of staying in the victim mode, it's how do you not only heal as an individual, but heal as a community. And so we launched that book. We actually did a, a, a interfaith prayer circle and prayed for anybody that has experienced sexual trauma. We prayed for our community. And then we prayed for the people that caused the trauma. Mm. Because the people that cause the trauma usually are broken themselves. So long story short, it's the Latino version of the Me Too movement. 
I love that. And what about the um, finding sane relationships in a crazy world? (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) Finding sane relationships is a crazy world. So when it first came out, people were like, oh, is this going to teach me how to to get a boyfriend or yeah, am I going to get married now? <laughs> so with that, the premise of that book is you are the foundation for all relationships in your life. Mm. So when you work on yourself and you're happy and healthy, you're going to have better relationships. So um, my master's is in counseling. I'm, you know, I'm a big proponent of self-help and improving our lives. So everybody has emotional baggage. I don't care who you are because Emotional baggage is created by experiences we have in our life. So people walk around with insecurities, guilt, anger, shame. So it's about releasing all your emotional baggage, becoming happy and healthy, so all your relationships in your life improve, including with yourself. Right. Because isn't that the first step in order to really be in a healthy, happy relationship? You have to heal whatever's ailing you. Absolutely. But in our society, so many people depend on others to make them happy. Right. It's my spouse's responsibility to make me happy. It's my children's responsibility. No, it's your responsibility. And if you have things that are blocking you from being happy, you have a choice to release them. I think that's beautifully said. So I think this is a question on my mind. I'm thinking it's probably a question on our audience's mind. How does someone like you, who has so much creativity, um, so much of that, you know, right side of the brain, it sounds like, in you, also go on to become president of this multi-billion dollar fund where you're crunching numbers and figuring out investments and doing the whole other side? Um, how did that happen? How did that come about? So I, on our board, we have seven members. Four four of them are appointed by the mayor of the city of Los Angeles, and the other three are elected by our um, constituents. So for me, I was appointed by the mayor. So when the mayor called me, because I've known him for a long time and worked with him in different capacities, he said, I really need you to be on the pension board. And it was- But had you been, sorry to interrupt, but had you been in a government role at that point? Well, um, yes. So I- Worked for the city of Los Angeles, as I mentioned. I, I ran the public works department, and then I was an okay. executive. I was then. Okay. Yeah, I was an executive at the port of Los Angeles, and so and then I opened my own business doing executive coaching, and and that's when I got the call. And so to me, it is part of my civic duty because obviously we don't get paid, and I mean we could get a fifty dollar a meeting stipend, but the mayor doesn't like that because he doesn't want his commissioners to be paid. Right. So, at first, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And so, again, I'm going to show up and be the best, you know, trustee possible. So I'm going to be full disclosure. I don't, I didn't have necessarily a lot of investment uh, background, right. but I obviously know because I've run large departments and large organizations, I know how to read, you know, profit and loss statements. I know about right. finances. So, which I felt was applicable. And then I said, okay, now that I'm here, what is it that's, what am I, why am I really here? And that's when I really started getting into uh, the ESG and led the efforts for um, our pension to become a member of UNPRI, which is an international group made up of many, many companies, both asset owners and, and pension funds and investors to really Look at, look at all investments through that lens of environmental 
social responsibility and governance. I love that. So you've really been at the forefront of trying to be innovative for the board and trying to bring new ideas. And, like. and the reason is because very early on getting on the pension board, I went to you know several conferences because I wanted to learn as much as possible. And I remember being in San Francisco at this very luxurious hotel, this right. big conference room, and there was probably 500 people in the room. And I started looking around at all the people and I'm like, okay, this is not a diverse group. <laughs> no, I've been at those conferences. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> very few women. Yes, I could, I could always count how many women. <laughs> yes. And very few people of color. So I'm like, okay, so what can I, how can I change this? And that's when I really started digging into the governance piece. Because again, I believe in diversity and I believe that that helps any situation. Now, going through the process of getting there might be a little painful, but once you get there and once people get used to it, I do believe it's the right thing. I think that's true. So you're uh, originally, you said your, your father was lit from Mexico and your mom from the Cherokee Nation? So my dad was born in the United States, so my, but his parents came you know, from Mexico almost 100 years ago. Okay. They came to uh, Los Angeles in, in 1922. Oh, wow. We have roots in Los Angeles for many years. But I like to say that I, from, I get my passion for life and my love for dance and music from my Latina side. And then from my Native American side, I get my spirituality and love for Mother Earth. Oh, I love that. I, I love that. So, I mean, I guess it must be a huge concern right now for, for you what's going on in California with the, with the fires. And how do you see the solution to that? Is there a solution? Have we come too far or is there still something we can do? Well, and that's why the E part in the ESG is so important because it's really, it's really accepting the, the fact that global warming is happening and how do we as, as a global community really address that. So first it's acceptance because the reality is that these fires are not going away. You know, they're right. getting worse. And it's because the temperature of the earth is rising. Yes. So we need to really, in my opinion, look through that lens of, you know, how do we create, you know, environmental sustainability with our resources, our money, our actions. And I think that everybody can play a part in that. And, you know, I've, I've really been inspired by this global movement of the young people yes. happened, you know, the last year and a half. And I do feel like the young people get it. I think that's true. Well, it's, they're the ones that are going to inherit this, this, and if we leave them with a mess, like I, I, I always say to my husband, you know, I fear that we're going to give our children a place that's really not like anything we grew up with. And, you know, air conditioned, for example, small thing. It seems so commonplace, right? It's like everybody has it, right? But how many times did they do a brownout and shut down in, in California in the last few weeks just to conserve that? And is that the direction we're going to have to go in? Is air conditioned just going to be commonplace? Well, I'm not sure it will be if we keep going in the direction that we are. So we have to think about change. And I think young people are understanding that, which is, which is good to know and good to see. 
but they're also blaming us. <laughs> We've heard that too. The young people are saying, okay, it's your fault. So me, right. <laughs> my native side is that we're taught when you, when a leader is making decisions, you remember seven generations in the past and you consider seven generations in the future. For me, it's really about, yes, this is, it may not happen in my lifetime, but if we don't start addressing these problems, what about, you know, I don't have any grandkids yet, but what about my grandkids and kids? You know, we need to really not be so individualistic and we need to look at this holistic and, you know, we only have one earth, you know, there's only one, you know, water that's really literally recycled. Right, <laughs> so exactly. It's like we really need to turn the corner and I am optimistic. So I believe we can. Okay. Um, tell me just have your real estate holdings. Um, do you see that changing a little bit with what's going on? Do you want to maybe get out of some of um, your real estate holdings and investments is, is retail. Do you find that something that you don't want to be invested in anymore? Well, and it's not only, okay. So real estate, we all know historically has been a great investment, right? But it really depends, you know, what we're looking at is what type of real estate, you know, what class, because maybe office buildings are not going to be needed as much as we transition from working in an office space to working at home. Now, um, student housing, is that going to be as relevant as it was because if you have online learning? So yes, in terms of we are evaluating our real estate portfolio. So it's like, how, what's, the, what's the wave of the future? What is going to change? You know, investment in malls. The people are not going to malls anymore. So is there a way to repurpose that invest, that uh, real estate, um, you know, the land? Or so, so I do believe it's changing, but you know, the change is happening slow. So we are evaluating because obviously as a trustee, we want to make sure we're doing everything in our power to get the most returns for our retirees. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing is to remember that behind um, every fund are people, right? With hopes, dreams, families, children, and that's really as board members who you're serving. And it sounds like you really understand that and are working um, toward positive change and meaningful lasting change. So I think that's wonderful. It's been so great to have you on, Cynthia. You're just, you're really an inspiration for, for women, for girls, but for people generally, because I think that you're somebody who's doing so many different things um, Maybe you don't feel like you're succeeding at all of them because I, I, I understand that feeling when you're like somewhat overwhelmed, but from the outside looking in, you're really doing a fantastic job at everything. And, and it's great to know there are people like you because it's just inspiring for all of us. So thanks for coming on. And um, I hope we'll get to meet you in person one of these days. Well, I just want to say thank you for much, very much for doing what you do because it's really giving people a voice. And really that's what it's about, having our voices heard and making sure it's a diverse voice. So thank you so much. I appreciate everything that you do and I do look forward to the time we get to meet in person. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye for now. Bye.